as we arrive in this strangest and most disconnected of lengths. We start a series that will run through from now to Palm Sunday. We're slowing down to explore the passion of Jesus Christ from the perspective of his wounds. These wounds were brutally real, as physical as the flesh and blood man who endured them. His back was torn to shreds by a Roman scourge. His hands and feet were pierced by terrible iron nails. His side was split open by the careless thrust of a spear. His head was crowned with thorns and beaten. And his heart, both literally and spiritually, was broken. He died. Why does this innocent life, lived as a love offering and service to others, end in such unimaginable suffering? Why or how can it bless us to reflect on these wounds? Aren't we better off skipping on to the glory of Easter Sunday? We will get there, but no fast forwarding to the nice bits. We need to watch with open eyes the suffering he willingly endured for our sakes. This will help us marvel at those simple words, Jesus died for me. This will help us to explore what it means to follow in his footsteps, presenting our own bodies as a living sacrifice. This morning, we begin with Jesus's back. We will range through the Gospels, but our reading catapults us into the heart of Holy Week. Jesus has just shared his last supper with his friends. Most of what he said has completely befuddled them. The air is thick with menace and melancholy. You will all fall away, he tells them. And so he takes the disciples to a garden to be quiet and to pray. Hello there, my name's Tim, and it's my privilege to be reading the Bible passage today. It's from Mark 14, verses 32 to 42. And I'm pleased to say that I have a couple of assistants to help me. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more... He went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. 
they did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Today, we're going to be watching Jesus' back. You've probably seen a thousand images of his face or his body on the cross, but it might take a moment's thought for you to picture his back. We don't have any physical descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament. We don't have anything that would help us construct a picture of what he looked like. We do know about the way that he was wounded and broken and disfigured. But if we're watching Jesus's back, we might have one or two clues to help us. Apprenticed to his earthly father Joseph as a carpenter, Jesus would likely have had a wiry, strong back. Carpenters built houses, not tourist trinkets. So the job involved hauling around huge beams. And the disciples saw quite a lot of Jesus's back, I think. He wasn't one to stand still. He was always disappearing over the next hill. And they were following in confusion and admiration. He had a plan. He had places to be and they followed in his wake. So they knew the sight of his back well as he took off to new preaching and healing opportunities. Mark tells us about Jesus's first preaching. His message would have landed really well on Twitter, concise and provocative. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. At his own baptism, Jesus had turned his back on former comforts and the steady rhythm of family and village life. Even though he was the one person in history who didn't need forgiveness, he still embraced John's baptism. Why? Because he wanted completely to identify with us as human beings. He didn't stand aloof or aside. He comes with all of us to the place of repentance, to be with us, to be in the water alongside us. The repentance that he preached about was all about turning around and facing the other way, turning our back on sin and selfishness, ego, hurt, pride, revenge, turning our back on patterns of living that dishonor God and spoil us, turning our back on the thoughts and worldviews that demean others and keep them captive. These things, they do have a a certain allure, an appeal. To turn our backs on them, well, it, it's a challenge. We'd rather keep them in view or keep them within reach. No, says Jesus, who loves and knows us. Turn your back on sin. Something or someone much better has come along. And I have come with good news. Jesus both lived this out and help his, helped his friends to take the first faltering steps 
of a new way of living. He managed what we find nigh impossible, turning his face and heart towards the unloved and the forgotten, whilst turning his back to sin and temptation. Through his ministry, Jesus led, the disciples followed, often disastrously or half-heartedly, but they followed this amazing, beautiful man until they found themselves in the Garden of Gethsemane. For an experience they were completely unprepared for. As they watched Jesus' back, they saw a very different Jesus, a Jesus trembling on the brink of abandoning his obedience to the Father, Jesus unsure whether he could go all the way to the cross, a Jesus banging on heaven's door, distressed to the point of deep groans and tears. Can you imagine how unsettling it was for them to see Jesus weeping and crying out to God, to see that strong back weighed down with fear and resignation. They see his agony, though they do not, cannot, will not comprehend it. In fact, they can't even stay awake. Partly the late hour, the good meal, the dark and peaceful garden, partly avoidance on an industrial scale. They cannot cope with Jesus like this. They were the fearful, uncertain ones. He was the strong one. So what on earth was going on? Astonishing then that each time Jesus emerges from his grappling in prayer, he is still concerned for them, still inviting them to open their hearts and their lives to God. Jesus is arrested only minutes later they scatter to the four winds, just as Jesus had predicted. Peter followed Jesus' back from a distance, though at the times when it really mattered, he didn't have Jesus' back at all. He lurked in the shadows as the terrible drama unfolded. Mark tells us with great economy that Pilate had Jesus flogged. Now, if you were raised like me on swashbuckling tales of life at sea in the 18th century, you may have some sense of what that means. Mark's audience in Rome definitely knew, so he didn't have to spell it out for them. But we can't necessarily picture what happened. Jesus was stripped and tied to a post. The flogging involved being repeatedly hit on his back with maximum effort. The whip or scourge was actually a leather strap fitted with bits of bone and lead. It didn't leave nice clean stripes or lash marks. It tore the skin and flesh to pieces. It was utterly brutal. It was sometimes enough to kill you, just the flogging. Then, when they led Jesus out to crucify him, what did they do? Imagine the condition of his back after that flogging, if you dare. His back looking like something from a butcher's shop, not the strong, determined back of the man that we love. They made him carry the crossbeam on his torn and shredded back. Imagine the weight, the heft of that bulky, rough-hewn, 
splinter-ridden timber pressing down on his eviscerated back, the agony of each step. We know that Jesus did not get very far, that a man called Simon from Cyrene in modern Libya was press-ganged by the soldiers to carry it for Jesus. We know also that Simon and his sons Rufus and Alexander became Christians. What a story! But this was not a kindness by the Roman soldiers. They just didn't want Jesus dying on them before they could get to the real pain and humiliation. I've realised writing this talk that Jesus' whole life and character had prepared him for these terrible moments. He had learnt what it means to turn your back on temptation. He had learnt what it means to carry the sufferings of others. He had accepted through his tears and cries that he was called to carry the terrible suffocating sin of the world alone as his dear frail and sometimes failed friend Peter wrote some years later. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Reflecting like this on the wounds of Jesus' back draws us to a deeper appreciation of one of the greatest truths of the Bible that can be expressed in the simplest of sentences. Jesus died for me. Or we might say, Jesus has got my back. In the Old Testament, we see a covenant between God and his people Israel. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He never breaks his contract. The people, on the other hand, do regularly, catastrophically. So what will God do? Abandon us? Give up on us? Fine us? No, God steps in himself to keep both sides of the covenant. He continues to be faithful. And in his faithful bearing of our sin, he clears the ground for you and me to accept and receive the love of God, to live in friendship with him. The New Testament has many images to underline this truth, but let's finish with three of the most powerful. The first is the image of a shepherd who acts as a living gate to defend his sheep against marauding predators. The sheep are safely tucked up in bed inside a thicket of thorns. The shepherd literally lies across the entrance, ready to meet any danger, any threat, head on. No one will get to the sheep without first coming through him. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The second image is the sacrificial love of a really, really good friend. Someone who's really got your back. Most of us can picture being willing to sacrifice ourselves, probably for the sake of someone that we love dearly. Absolutely, says Jesus. You, every lovely one of you, are my dear friends. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. 
The third image comes from the marketplace. Imagine a slave who's for sale in the market. They're helpless. They can never free themselves. They can run away, but they will be hunted down unless someone steps in to pay the price for their freedom. Pick me, says Jesus. I will free you. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus wants you back. Jesus calls you to turn your back on the very things that spoil and throttle you. Jesus has got your back. The very things that spoil and throttle you are his now. They're not yours.